That surprised me as well. Okay, let's begin with a word of prayer, and we will uh, begin our Bible study. Lord, we are eager to be here. Uh, We want to know what your word will reveal to us today. Uh, We love these words. They've spoken to us throughout the week as we've read them, and we've been challenged and rebuked by them, even, I'm sure, as we know that your word is uh, alive and it changes us. And so I pray that even this morning would be a small part in that as we consider um, maybe some interesting things from your words, some challenging things, but please make us more like Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, this morning I wanted to address a topic that has been repeated three times now in Matthew, Mark, now in Luke, in our reading. And it's one that there's a lot of mystery concerning this topic. Maybe some fear, maybe some uneasiness regarding it. And that is the topic of what is commonly called the unpardonable sin. How many have ever heard of that? Yes. Perhaps even as I mention it, you're like, Oh boy, (laughs) there's some lingering uneasiness about what exactly the unpardonable sin is. And from Jesus' own words from our reading this week in Luke 12, he says that a person who commits this sin will not be forgiven. Yeah, and that is, uh, well, we know the implications of what it would be for a sin to not be forgiven, right? That's to be condemned, If you commit this sin, there's no hope for you. There's no going back. You cannot be forgiven this sin. And thinking about this topic can sometimes lead people to begin asking themselves questions like, is it possible that I've committed this sin at some point in my past? Maybe you're even wondering, is it possible that I could commit this sin at some point in the future. And it's with that uncertainty and uneasiness in mind that we'll turn to the scriptures today and hopefully just shed some light on what exactly the unpardonable sin is and answer the questions, can I commit it? Is it possible that people here today have committed this sin? And uh, we'll let the scripture inform our decision. I wanted to begin this study, though, um, by doing what several articles that I read this week They approach the topic this way. They actually began describing the unpardonable sin by explaining what it is not. And I thought that would be a helpful exercise for us today to begin by talking about what the unpardonable sin is not. So let me explain this to you. It it, it would seem that at some point in church history, people began to think that the unpardonable sin was a sin that we would generally lump into the really like severe category of sins. Things like murder, adultery, robbing a bank. They would say those sins are so big that they are unpardonable, that you cannot be forgiven of those things. Let me ask you guys, how does that strike you? Maybe give some evidence as to where you might disagree with that line of reasoning. How how might you disagree with that? Can you think of anyone in scripture? Shane. Paul, David. 
Yeah, yeah. So what Shane is doing is he's listing some people that have committed these really bad sins that we know were still forgiven. David, a murderer, an adulterer. Paul persecuted the church uh, before he was a believer. Ted? Yeah, yeah. He was reviling Jesus moments before, and he was forgiven. Totally. Yeah. Uh, I thought of Moses. He killed somebody. Forgiven. So uh, the experience that we have from the scriptures is, no, the unpardonable sin is not murder, adultery, robbing a bank. Even in 1 Corinthians 6, there's this list of all the really bad sins. And Paul concludes, and you guys committed some of these sins, and you've still come to Christ. So it's not, we shouldn't think of the unpardonable sin in these categories of just very general bad sins, if you will. I think what this idea neglects to consider is what, God's word says about the unpardonable sin. Thus far, this is just people thinking, oh, I think it's this, I think it's this. Let's turn to the scriptures and see what the unpardonable sin is described as. So we'll go to Luke 12 to begin with from our reading this week where Jesus mentions it. Luke 12, and it starts in verse 8. We'll read verses 8 through 10. Jesus speaking here says, And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. So you guys tell me, what is the exact sin that Jesus describes here that will not be forgiven? Blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. And notice how specific Jesus is here. Just before that, In verse 10, he says, everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, paralleling blaspheming, will be forgiven. But those who blaspheme specifically the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Ted actually just gave us a great example of someone who blasphemed Jesus and was forgiven. The thief right next to to Jesus on the cross, both of them were engaged in mocking Jesus, and yet one repented and had faith, and Jesus said, you'll be with me in paradise today. Maybe even some of you here uh, could give personal testimony of people you know that once attacked and mocked Jesus, and yet to this day are repentant. They've been born again. Jesus is being very, very, very specific, and he's saying, but it is the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit that will not be forgiven. So that sheds a little bit light on the issue for us. It's not a general category of sins, but something very specific. I think the next thing we need to consider is we know who the Holy Spirit is, but maybe what is blasphemy? Well, generally, it could be described as uh, derogatory words directed towards God. Uh, There's a really interesting Example of blasphemy in Leviticus, in which someone blasphemes God. I think he's like right in the middle of a fight with someone else. And immediately, uh, like this man is kind of sectioned off until judgment is given, and he's stoned for his blasphemy 
against God. Uh, A couple of people that I read this week made the point that blasphemy is something you willingly choose to engage in. It is uh, decisive, it's intentional, it's direct. They were kind of making the point that you cannot commit blasphemy uh, passively. That it's not just like this magic phrase you could quote and I blaspheme the Holy Spirit. No, no, no. This is something that is reflective of a condition of the heart, as we will see in just a couple of minutes. That This is the point they're making. So thus far, I think we could describe the unpardonable sin as language directed toward the, towards the Holy Spirit that is uh, intentional, that it treats him with contempt or scorn or mockery. This is scripture informing our decision, but I think we could even get a little more precise by turning to another passage of scripture, this time Mark chapter 3. Same event, but a little bit more specific about what it would mean for us to blaspheme the Spirit. Mark chapter 3. We'll start in verse 28. We read, Jesus again speaking says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man in whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. So these verses more or less mirror what Luke has already told us. But verse 30 really helps to like just hone us in on the issue that was taking place here when Jesus talks about this. We read, for they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Now we're going to break this down a little bit further, and I'm going to engage you guys as Bible students to tell me some of what's going on here in setting the context. Verse 30 begins by saying, for they were saying, go back and look, who is the they that is saying this about Jesus, that he has an unclean spirit. The scribes, yeah, do you see that verse 22? The scribes came down from Jerusalem. Uh, I think Matthew tells us that the Pharisees were present as well. Uh, So these are the people who know God's word. They know the law. It was their responsibility actually to teach it and kind of set the example. And they say about Jesus that he has an unclean spirit. Now they don't just say this randomly. They don't just come up to him and say, you have an unclean spirit. Again, looking at the context, in what situation are they saying this about Jesus? What, what necessitated this remark? Hutch. That he was out yeah, that he was casting out demons. So in this exact scenario, Jesus has just cast out demons himself. Matthew tells us that the people who observed this miracle are asking themselves, is this the son of David? They are close to knowing Jesus's identity. And yet these religious leaders, these scribes, they come and say about Jesus, he's demon-possessed himself. He's only able to cast out demons by the power of demons. So, having a little bit fuller of a context about the unpardonable sin, how would you maybe describe what has taken place here? 
This is what necessitates Jesus' teaching on blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. It would appear that these people have just committed it. From the scriptures, then, what might your definition be, given this exact illustration? Hutch? Exactly. Yes. By attributing the power of the Holy Spirit to Satan. Do you see that in the text? Here Jesus is, by the power of the Holy Spirit, casting out demons, and people say, that's not the Spirit, that's Satan. And that's what necessitates Jesus' teaching about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I trust you can see the gravity of what is taking place here. The spiritual blindness, the willing hardness of heart is astonishing. Again, there are people who are so close to knowing who Jesus is by this very act. Is this the son of David? Religious leaders, no, it's Satan. Horrifying, really, in some ways. From the scriptures, that is a definition of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. But there's a question everyone wants to know, right? Can I commit this sin? Would it be possible for me to commit blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Well, there's a couple of schools of thoughts uh, regarding the answer to this question. The first looks at this unique circumstance and concludes that it is impossible for people to commit blasphemy against the Spirit just by nature of how unique of a situation this took place in, right? They look at the context and they say, for this to have occurred, Jesus, God in the flesh, was present. He was doing works by the power of the Holy Spirit, and people attributed those very works to Satan. And so they would look at our present day and they would say, well, Jesus isn't walking the earth, doing these great signs by the power of the Spirit. And if that's what was required, then it's impossible for us to commit this sin. I actually really appreciate uh, the weight that people who believe this way give to the context of the scriptures. Uh, I, I think they were probably the most faithful to, I'll say, the context of any solution that I read. And they would just say, no, Jesus isn't walking among us today. We cannot commit this sin. However, there is another school of thought regarding blasphemy of the Holy Spirit that has a little bit more general of an approach. And it considers if there are still a situation today in which people could deny the power of the Holy Spirit. Maybe even as I said that, the gears are turning a little bit in your mind. What does that kind of sound like to people who would deny the power of the Holy Spirit? Mm, not entirely, no. Well, well, there are some people that think that this is denying the Spirit's work of convicting you of sin, right? Jesus describes the work of the Spirit, that he is coming to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And if you, if you are actively resisting the Holy Spirit's convicting you of sin, righteousness, and judgment, then you are hardening your heart and blaspheming the Holy Spirit by your continued rejection of him. Now, even within this explanation, it gets a little bit more nuanced. There are some people who say, well, 
the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is really just something that is a continual hardening of your heart up until your deathbed. And when you die, you've essentially blasphemed the Holy Spirit your whole life, and therefore you cannot be forgiven. Some people conclude that. Others say, no, 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 you can totally commit this sin in your lifetime and not be forgiven from that point forward. Uh, in essence, they would say you have chosen willingly to reject the ministry of the Spirit, and because you've made that decision and hardened your heart to that extent, God withdraws his grace and his spirit, and when God removes himself from the equation, no one is forgiven. There's a couple of different uh, solutions or suggestions that have been offered by people. Any, any questions as I've been talking? Um, I realize it's, yeah, Claire. The first example you gave about the person who was blaspheming the Holy Spirit until the day that they died. Yes. You're talking unsaved people? Correct. Uh, that's what I'm going to answer right now, actually. Yeah. I'm going to argue that it is impossible for believers to commit blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. T. Okay. Yeah. They purposely dedicate their life to saying, no, you're wrong. This does, and here's the proof that God doesn't exist. You take a face value atheist and you go, okay, I can disprove that. But a person that goes above and beyond that, that they dedicate every ounce of their being to, no, God does not exist. I think that could certainly be part of it. Yeah, I do want to take Jesus's words into consideration there. And just even when he said, if you blaspheme the, whole, the son of God, you can be forgiven of that sin. We know people who have, you know, probably atheists like you're describing that have made it their life's work to discredit the Bible and, and can still repent. Uh, specifically in this situation, though, it would be blaspheming the spirit. If, if we're going to take one of these definitions just of God's work of convicting through the Spirit and say, you know what? Nope, I've hardened my heart to such a point that God says, okay. Very much Romans 1-esque, where God gives people over to their own lustful passions and kind of withdraws himself from the equation. That's kind of what people are getting at with that uh, second example that I described. Jeff. Yeah, that's a great point. We Certainly believers can quench the spirit of God, but blaspheming, I'm about to argue, and commit this unforgivable sin is impossible for a believer because this butts right up against this idea of eternal security, right? There is not a sin that Christians could commit that would interrupt their standing with God, that would somehow make them unforgivable. Can I remind you of some awesome verses from the book of John? 
John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. John 6, all that the father gives to me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. You cannot commit a sin in which Jesus says, okay, I'm casting you out. John 5, truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. For a believer, it is impossible for us to commit a sin that cannot be forgiven. So if you're a believer here this morning, and maybe the different solutions I proposed are still a little bit confusing to you, know this, you cannot commit this sin and be separated from the love of God, from the forgiveness that you have achieved in Christ. Now, here's this, for unbelievers, maybe this topic is still very concerning to you. Is it possible that I've committed a sin that cannot be forgiven? Let me encourage you again with another passage of scripture, Romans 10. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If this is concerning to you, the invitation is clear from scriptures, come to Christ. If you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. It's that simple. It's that clear. A lot of people that I'm reading are arguing that people who have committed this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, they don't care. They, they, they just simply do not possess any conviction or remorse or, did I commit it? No, they, they've hardened themselves to such a point that, whatever. That doesn't bother them. If it, still bothers, if it still bothers you, come to Christ is the invitation of the scriptures. Repent, he forgives. His, his mercy is awesome. Any other questions? That's kind of the gist of my lesson. Yeah, Mike. If a believer becomes an unbeliever, that becomes apostasy because Joseph wasn't really the father of, of Jesus. The Holy Spirit was. So what if you change your mind and you convert and you say convert to Islam and now you diminish Jesus to just a prophet. You convert, convert to Judaism and say he wasn't the Christ. Isn't that blaspheming the Holy Spirit? To that we would say that um, the apostasy that you just described was evidence that um, that person was not regenerate to begin with. People do not know Christ truly and then walk away from that. We would say that they were uh, maybe perhaps the soil that fell on the ground and sprouted just a little bit, then the birds came and took away, uh, but definitely not truly regenerate people. Yes, Hutch. The Christian, born again Christian, so there is a sin that does lead unto death, that if we continue to grieve the Holy Spirit or say communion, you know, some receive it unworthingly, so some are sick and even die. So you can't just say, First John does mention that sin that leads to death. Uh, that would probably, it would be different in a different category than what is being described here. Um, we're a believer to sin that leads to death. They would still be forgiven and be in eternity, yes. Elizabeth.
Um, interesting thought, certainly. I do want to keep the context of the scriptures as the priority here, though. So in this particular example, it was people who are seeing the work of Jesus and saying, that is not the Spirit of God, that is Satan. And that is what prompts Jesus to teach about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So any definition we have, I think, needs to be from that exact framework. Yeah. Will. Good question. I think it'd be very hard to deduce if someone had committed this sin. Um, so certainly the command of scripture is share Christ with everyone and leave it up to the drawing of the spirit and God the Father to draw them or whatever. But I think it'd be very, very difficult for us to know if someone has actually committed this sin. Yeah, Marcus. That could be a parallel. I, I, that could be a parallel, yeah. I mean, these people were doing signs, and if they were rejecting those, I, I would not be opposed to saying that perhaps that's what was taking place in those cities. All right. That's it for questions. Let's go look at some of the answers from the notebook this week. All right, from Luke 11, uh, we're told Jesus is illustrating to his disciples. He just, he's just uh, given them the outline for the Lord's Prayer. And he keeps teaching on prayer in Luke 11, and he tells this parable uh, to make a point about this guy who has a friend show up at his house at midnight. The traveler's hungry. So this... Uh, Guy wants to feed his unexpected guest, and he doesn't have any bread in his own house, so he goes to his neighbor and asks him for, hey, do you have three extra loaves? Well, of course, you know the story. The neighbor is already in bed with his family. It'd be a big inconvenience for the neighbor to get out of bed and wake up his whole family, presumably, just to give this guy three loaves. So that kind of leads into the first question. Does the neighbor get out of bed because he is friends with the man who woke him up? No, why does the text say that he got out of bed? I, okay, interesting. Does, is that the word that the ESV or the, the copy of scripture you were looking at used? Okay, and what does it say? Okay. I actually have the King James listed. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have asked you that. 
When I looked at the King James, it said importunity was the word that it, u- that it used. John, I heard you say the ESV says impudence. Any other? The, the exact reason the text says. The reason I'm asking this point is because sometimes we have this idea in our minds that the reason he got out of bed is because of his persistence. That he was standing at the door banging on it over and over and over again, give me some bread. And we can tease that out into our then interpretation of the parable and conclude that if we are just persistent in praying, God will say, shut up, I'll give you what you want just so you leave me alone. We think that persistence is the key to our prayers being heard. However, notice the text doesn't say persistence. It says impudence in the ESV. The NASB says shamelessness. King James says importunity. NIV says shameless audacity. I think we've misunderstood this parable for a little bit. And particularly our application of it, that persistence unlocks answers to prayer. Not so. Uh, Impudence is not a word we use that often. It does mean like the NASB and NIV are kind of communicating this bold, shameless, presumptuous type attitude. So if we could think about the parable just slightly differently, here's what's happening. We might say that the guy in bed is kind of being put in an awkward spot. He's kind of been painted into a corner, we might say, where here's his neighbor who's trying to be a good host, and he says, hey, can you give me some bread? Now, what's the guy in bed going to do? Say no, and then have to wake up the next morning and, hey, neighbor, I know I ignored you. (laughs) Are we still good? Is he going to say no in the presence of all of the other neighbors who have been woken up, maybe, you know, and then he is made out to be the bad guy? No, impudence is communicating that he's kind of been put in an awkward spot by the audacity, the shamelessness of his neighbor, and that's why he replies. I'm trying to make the point that it's not persistence that unlocks God answering our prayers. It's not even impudence, even if we've misunderstood the parable for a while now, it's not as if we can make God feel awkward and manipulate him into answering our prayers. What relationship do we have with God that just totally contrasts the parable that Jesus has told in this story? Is God just a neighbor who's in bed? No, what is he? He's our father, yes. And so the instructions then is because God is not annoyed with you or manipulated by you, he is our father, then come to him. Ask, seek, knock. That's his disposition towards us. Jesus goes on to describe that if our earthly fathers who are evil when we ask for things can give us good gifts, will not God the Father give us good? What is the answer to the fourth question? What does God give to those who ask him? I, the Holy Spirit. Yes, I think Matthew says that he will give us good gifts like our earthly fathers do. But Luke says that God will give us the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. Interesting. That can kind of seem a little, if we're just being honest, a little underwhelming, to be honest. Oh, I kind of wanted it to say God will give me good gifts. Like, I want a Ferrari. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Yes, Cynthia.
Yeah. Yeah. Um, same thing, I think, with um, the lady with the judge that wasn't just the uh, judge, and because she was, you know, bothering me so much, then I give it to her what she had. Yeah. So, and you said that it's, it's not for the participants, or, you know. Yeah. We're going to read the story of the unjust judge this week and make the point that God is not like an unjust judge, right? He, he doesn't just give in because we won't shut up about something. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I think maybe from the New Testament, an example that we just considered very recently in Sunday morning is uh, Paul praying three times for God to remove the thorn from his flesh, right? And if you remember, Pastor John made the point, it wasn't as if the thousandth time praying for this unlocks some sort of answer from, oh, Paul, you've prayed a thousand times. Okay, I will take the thorn away, right? Eventually, it wasn't his persistence that was motivating God to act. God said, no, <laughs> the answer is no. I'm, I'm, I'm not removing this thorn. My grace is gonna be sufficient for you. So I, I do understand what you're saying, I do think there certainly is like a perseverance that is required in our prayer. I'm trying to get after the mindset though. If, if we think that it is plain and simply repetition in asking God for things that somehow grants him answering our requests, that is not the point of this parable. He is not the neighbor who's begrudgingly, oh, you're lucky I'm your friend, I'll do what you want. <laughs> no, he, he is a good Father, who is inclined, much like our earthly fathers, to give good things to those who ask. The Holy Spirit, in this particular instance. Yeah, good questions. Moving on to section two of Luke. Uh, we're told, and kind of setting the context uh, to answer this question, that the crowds are increasing around Jesus, and what are they asking him for? What do they want to see? A sign. Yeah. Now, first read through, Jesus rejects them. How, how does he view that request for a sign? He calls them what? Uh, an evil generation, correct. Yes, and, and first read through in that parable, we're kind of left thinking, Jesus, why can't you just do like one miracle and show these people who you are, right? Like, come on. Well, the point is, is that Jesus had shown them miracles, they had seen God's work in the past. And, and is one more miracle going to unlock for them some sort of like, well, now we believe? Well, no, this was reflective of the condition of their heart. They just wanted to see a show. They wanted to see some awesome display of power. And so Jesus goes on to explain this really interesting story or parallels from the Old Testament where he says, the Queen of Sheba, upon hearing about Solomon's wisdom and, her, and his splendor. She came from a long distance just to see. The Ninevites, upon hearing the message of Jonah, repented. Right? And interestingly enough, as was pointed out to me, both of these groups of people are Gentiles. They can hear something and go check it out for themselves. They'll respond to preaching. He says, but you guys, 
there's something even greater than Jonah, than Solomon here. Obviously, we're talking about Jesus. He's greater than Jonah and Solomon. And so how should these crowds have been responding to Jesus? With what kind of attitude? Yeah, repentance, with faith, belief. It's reminded me in thinking about all of Jesus' miracles recently, that just because you saw a miracle of Jesus didn't mean you necessarily believed who he was. It certainly contributed to that. I think there are times when we would love to see a miracle and that would strengthen our faith. But plenty of people, even ones that we saw in the Pharisees and scribes, saw Jesus cast out a demon and rejected it. To come to Christ, even in this day, requires faith and belief in who he is, much like it does today. All right, from Luke chapter 12. This guy comes up to Jesus and he says, hey, uh, can you tell my brother to split the inheritance with me? Kind of get the impression that maybe the brother had like snagged the whole thing for himself. And here's the other guy, hey, Jesus. And, and Jesus replies like, who am I? I'm not your judge or your arbiter. And Jesus looks at this man and says to be on guard against all covetousness. Why did Jesus say that? What was the exact reasoning that he gave for why we should be on guard against all covetousness? Will? Uh, For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Exactly. Because one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. How's that for a response? Here's a guy looking for Jesus to, you know, kind of be a judge or a middleman and say, yeah, yeah, hey, brother, give him half. And Jesus says, don't worry about it. There's way more to life than possessions. And he goes on to tell this story about a rich man who accumulates all of this wealth. And Jesus's ultimate pronunciation against this rich man is that he is a fool. Why is that? Why is he called a fool? Sit out to. I caught the end of that. Could you say the first part again? Okay, yeah, he kind of thought he was the owner of his soul and all the riches he had accumulated. Yeah, what exactly happens to this rich guy that makes him a fool? Julia. He dies. He dies. And the very obvious conclusion is, you can't take that with you. So so why, Jesus is saying, spend your whole life accumulating these possessions to die? Ecclesiastes poses a very similar uh, example, and it just points out the vanity of doing that very thing. You you worked so hard only to die and pass on your wealth to your son who's going to squander it. Surely there's more to life than that. This leads us into part two of chapter 12's questions. So what are Jesus's instructions regarding our attitude about finances and where to store our treasures? A little bit later on in this chapter, he's going to say, hey, this is how you should treat your finances. What are his his instructions? How does he say we should be? Yeah, Julia. Yeah, he says build up treasure in heaven. And how exactly does he encourage people to do that? 
Lisa. By being generous. Yeah, he says, sell your possessions and give to the needy, and you'll lay up treasure in heaven. What are Paul's instructions to the rich in 1 Timothy 6? What does he say to rich people? Julia? To be rich in good works. Yeah, what else does he say? Claire? Be good stewards. Okay. Um, I, had, I had this first written. Let me just look at it. He says, don't be haughty. Don't set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, like Dave is saying, rely on God. Uh, do good. Be rich in good works. Ready to share. And in so doing, these people will, sh- will have uh, treasure in the life to come. Now, to be transparent with you, I was pretty rebuked by this passage of scripture as I was reading it on Tuesday morning. Particularly Jesus' words, one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Like, I am so guilty of that kind of thinking. We, we get so caught up in the planning and saving and ensuring that our future is comfortable and, you know, managing all of these little things that before you know it, we're the fool in this parable who has died with a ton of earthly wealth, but very little to show in heaven. I'm not trying to discredit planning and saving and working hard. Those are certainly biblical things. But if we give undue attention to those ideas, very quickly, we are the rich man in this parable. The fool. I've been reading Hudson Taylor's biography. And when he was like a teenager, maybe early 20s, probably a teenager, he concluded that he was going to give up what he called the luxuries of life, which for him was uh, milk and butter in his diet, so that he could give more of his income away to needy people in England. This was before he ever went to China. So he was given something like two-thirds of his income away, living on rice and oatmeal, just so he could have more to give. And at one point, actually, he gave the very last coin out of his pocket, like the last that he possessed on earth in monetary form. He gave it to someone else. And that was a huge step of faith for him. I mean, it was quite the process. He actually was like battling with God in his heart as he sees this person's need and finally just says, you know what, here it is. Everything I own in this coin, here you go. And like that very next day, he was given a a larger sum of money than he had even given. And he said, right then and there, I decided to invest in a bank that can't decay. Right? Obviously, he's talking about spiritual things, where here's someone who says, you know what? If it's the shirt off my back, so to speak, I'll give it if it means I'm laying up treasure in heaven. I'm willing to make these sacrifices. And and I'm just like thinking to myself, like, Tyler, when are you going to like actually not just read this and say, yeah, that's nice. I'll, I'll give out of my surplus. But like take God at his word and sell my possessions and give to the needy. And remember that it is the fool who dies with a big bank account. In the next life, as I'm sure Hudson Taylor is realizing right now, oatmeal and rice for dinner every night, for as boring as that sounds, do you think he, he thinks it was worth it today? Because of the treasure he laid up in heaven? Totally. Yeah, I, I would encourage you to please just think some more about this verse. It has been the cause for some serious just reflection, or should be in my own life, but it's made me think. 
yeah, I realize we're out of time and we only got like two chapters in. Um, we'll go all the way to Luke 15. I just want to make this point really quickly because I think it's too awesome to uh, ignore. In Luke 15, Jesus tells two parables. What is the point of those two parables? He comes to the same conclusion in each. There's one about a coin that is found and a sheep. Yeah, Andy. Yeah, rejoice being the key word there. Rejoice specifically when? When people repent, yes. When someone comes to repentance and faith in Christ, the conclusion is that all of heaven rejoices. So what does this teach us about the value of sharing Christ? I add in quotes, with the tax collectors and sinners of our day. Because sometimes we like to evangelize people that are like strategic for our church. Oh, this person's a CEO. Let's get them in here and they'll, we'll get their gifts. We'll get their money. We'll all this good stuff, you know, and then oh, this person's homeless. Mm, maybe not worth our time. No, no, no. What does this verse teach us about the value of sharing with even the lowest in society? Timmy. Jesus cares about everyone. Heaven rejoices if you're a millionaire or homeless. When you come to Christ, heaven rejoices. And so what does this teach us about evangelism? Even if it requires a lot of time and energy and only produces one conversion, you say, I've spent a year with this person talking through the exchange, and it took hours and hours and hours and hours. Worth it, according to heaven? Totally. One soul is precious. Jesus died for them. Heaven rejoices when sinners repent. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would give us, as we just consider this last question here, that kind of fervor and passion and love for lost people, no matter who they are, no matter what we might think they bring to the table from an you know, earthly perspective, but help us to just go out and share Christ with everyone, regardless of how much time it takes or resources it drains from us. We know that you care deeply and you rejoice when sinners repent. Please let that be true of our hearts. Give us a little taste of what that rejoicing is like. Help us to be just diligent in laying up treasure in heaven and taking you not just at a suggestion level, but as a command and say, you know what? I'm willing to step out in faith and live like this. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.